0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I am joined today by my guest, Shara Rambaran. Shara is Assistant Professor of Music at Bader International Study Center in the UK. She also co-runs the Art of Record Production conferences, and is an editor on the Journal on the Art of Record Production, and co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Music and Virtuality. Shara's latest book is Virtual Music, Sound, Music, and Image in the Digital Era, and is published by Bloomsbury Academic. Shara, thank you for joining me today.
1: Hello, Bradley. Thank you so much for inviting me and for the opportunity to talk about my book.
0: Of course. this I think this is a fantastic book, but for those uh, listening who may not be familiar, please share with us what your book is about.
1: Sure. So, Virtual Music, Sound, Music, and Image in the Digital Era was published by Bloomsbury Um, academic last year in april 2021 and my book virtual music explores the interactive relationship of sound music image and its uses in the digital era and the way i apply the term uses is actually quite ambiguous because in the book i like to refer to creators such as music composers and more importantly the listeners as well, um, the audience, the consumers, the fans. And while the term virtual music itself can be very ambiguous and complex to define and understand, just like if you're going to have a conversation on what is popular music, or music will be here forever uh, discussing it and having interesting conversations. Um, But yeah, so the same can be applied to virtual music because there are so many areas, ideas, features, and debates to consider and contemplate. Uh, For my book, I have really focused on the fascination and innovations surrounding virtual music by investigating artists and creators such as Grace Jones, The Weeknd, Craftwork, Mad Villain, Gorillaz and Danger Mouse. And I also look at other forms of virtual uh, music such as audiovisual um, materials such as video games and soundtracks such as Cuphead and musical styles such as Chip
0: yeah it's a really comprehensive book um, so we'll start in the from the beginning in the introduction to your book you say that the concept of interplay of virtual and digital are complex but we generally apply these terms freely without justifying their usage can you tell me what is the difference between di- digital and virtual in the context of your book and how do these concepts impact music
1: yes yeah, so yeah so we've all been used to using these terms separately without us realizing in everyday conversation and from my approach virtual or virtuality you know it's something that you think of you know in your mind or some kind of illusion or imagination and with digital it's always some kind of medium or some kind of technology or device that helps to put that um, illusion into reality so to speak and for the sake of that book because uh, you know i've been there we've experienced it we always you know play with the terms virtual and digital you will as you know um, throughout the book i kind of use the terms together digital virtual and i thought it'd be a nice unique way of applying the term and without having to think oh am i using this term correctly because people are using virtual when they're discussing digital technology anyway. And we are obviously, because of the pandemic, we are so used to using the term virtual, especially now, you know, when we're doing online stuff like the podcast or education, we're we're so used to using virtual when we are relying on digital technology to make this possible. Yeah.
0: That's interesting you say that because one of the earliest chapters when you frame this idea of digital and virtual is by exploring the history of technology and delivering music as a medium uh you know from gramophone to vinyl to mp3 so i want to know how how access to music as either a creator or listener has evolved and expanded over time with this technology
1: oh yeah very much so because um um Back in the day when you know early science of music technology, yeah, it all comes down to affordability and accessibility. And you know, when you mentioned um, devices such as gramophone, of course, you you know, if for the consumer, you know, it wasn't always that easy to have hands on unless you can, you know, freely afford it. And over the years and so, you know, music technology has really been designed for music industry use and creativity and composition or musicians that can have access to it. And, you know, as time or decades have gone by, slowly but surely, certain music technologies and audio devices have become more affordable even more so today and in the book I I do emphasize on that especially with the likes of using computers or laptops there is so much software out there that's very affordable and hopefully accessible as well you know depending where you're located as long as you've got a decent internet connection as well I find that really important that everyone has some kind of opportunity and access to music making or listening to music. So I do believe now, you know, there's so much choice out there in terms of having access to technology and affordable choices as well.
0: And that was a really interesting angle with your book to talk about the accessibility um, of music and music technology. And when I think about digital and virtual, I do think of computers and synthesizers and those kind of things within like the last you know 20 or 30 years. But there's some examples where you bring in full circle the older forms of music and connecting that narrative of accessibility and even social change. And when you're discussing experimental music, in your book you say early experimental music provided the foundations for future music. And one of the examples you brought up was, um, Krautrock, which is, uh, for our listeners out there, Krautrock, Krautrock is a questionable term that British journalists use to market this style of music. It's usually to describe, um, rock or rock centric music coming from Germany. It's a out of date term, but it's there for the, you know, kind of historical context. But, um, you say that this genre was based on postmodernism and surrealism and broke the dominance that the United States and UK had on popular music, while also expressing a creative desire to escape Germany's devastation and think toward a brighter future through musical creativity. Share with us share with us more about the social and musical impact of that in terms of you know what experimental music can do, what experimental technology can do to break down those kind of social constructs and increase a you know. Accessibility to new thoughts and ideas.
1: Yeah, so with the um, style, like you mentioned, for example, you know, it it was an expressive way for musicians to express their feelings and their emotions of the after effects, you know, of the war, for example, and to experiment in um, you know, with their music which is why um it might you know it may not be pleasing to everybody's ear you know it might sound very you no know, no based on noise or very surreal like you said you know the idea of experimenting of everyday sound and sonics and technologies um you know the idea of breaking rules and conventions when you you know when we apply the term postmodern n- postmodernism and but to maintain you know, the roots of why they they explore and experimented with this music in terms of, you know, the haunting side of the history and putting that into action. And, you know, while it may not be pleasing to everybody's ear, for those who will appreciate it, you know, they, they will be able to sense and, again, have that illusion what the musicians and creators are feeling. And, you know, and, again, it's almost like, an instrumental side of storytelling right you know um yeah just through the music alone and they could pick up all the effects the emotions just by hearing the sounds in the music uh yeah so that's why yeah so i you know i for that chapter alone um yeah i I was very specific in terms of styles and genres that were all the styles and genres i could have chosen you know i wanted to really focus on you know electronica electronic music and and later on hip-hop as well, uh, yeah.
0: So how did artists like Kraftwerk do that with their music?
1: Oh, just by exploring with instruments, sounds, machines, the obsession with machines as well, you know, and the idea of bringing everyday other technologies into the equation as well, you know, that from where they're from in Germany, you know, you know it's a very industrial, I wanted to hone in on the industrial cities and how they applied that into their music. And which shouts out, you know, where their roots as well, you know, but at the same time, it was groundbreaking in terms, when you mentioned, oh, you know, the idea of feeling of being futuristic, you know, in their music, which was really ahead of its time because it was, you know, it was breaking traditions in terms of music making and creativity by exploring various instruments and what would have been considered as, you know, unusual instruments. I mean, machines, technology, you know, which is really part of everyday music now. So, yeah.
0: Absolutely. And with the example of Kraftwerk, knowing their music, they were kind of building this utopian kind of machine driven future. But there are other examples in that chapter where you talk about the convergence of experimentalism and technology and how, those came together to impact the development of other genres, and you mentioned psychedelic, you mentioned dub, you mentioned hip hop, and ambient. Talk about this. About, talk with us about those genres as well, and perhaps some examples on how um, technology and experimentalism fueled a kind of vision of what those genres were supposed to represent.
1: Yes, yes, for sure. Um, so, what the one what I should mention with experimental music through personal experience, you know, it's just like it can be a complex term in itself, like virtual, like popular music and so on. And when I, you know, when I was a music student, um, professors had their own take on experimental music and they never talked about these styles. And, you know, as a creator or composer, you know, every music you hear is based on some kind of experiment of some sort. And I felt it was important to talk about these groups and producers and these styles so for example um with with dub you know um rightfully so you know it it was it was around about the same time you Oh, it started around the same time when psychedelic rock was evolving and the idea of experimenting with sound effects and technologies in the recording studio. And with dub music alone, it was always about the drum and bass sound. Most of it was instrumental as well, but the emotions were more important. It was it was politically driven and you could feel that through the music, especially with the bass and the way they manipulate, for example, King Tubby, the way he would manipulate with the sound effects, you know, that frustration, you know, without having to hire a singer and scream, you know, so it was all about feeling the effects and putting, you know, putting your creative thoughts through experimenting um, in the recording studio and the use of sound effects. So that's with dub, for example. Um, yeah, and the other styles that I mentioned, such as hip-hop as well, of course, through samples as well, you know, totally different mood. But, um, for example, you know, using existing sources from other texts or other mediums can bring out new meaning in a new piece of music. So that's... And you get that a lot when when you look at hip-hop music. So I'll use Mad Villain as an example, how they managed to transform, um, you know, Brazilian music <laughs> into a haunting sound, you know, a nice holiday feel, laid-back sound, but into a totally different context, just through samples alone and through lyrics as well, which I find really, really interesting. Okay. Yeah, and what I deliberately did at the end of the chapter, I used a group British group and producer Bomb the Bass and Tim Simenon, um that Uh, to demonstrate electronica but what's interesting about that track it displays all the different styles that I mentioned in the um, chapter so you know a bit of ambient bit of dub and you know electronic and so on and it's quite progressive as well you know It, it does progress it does you know so you get a nice exploration of the different styles that I mentioned in that chapter. So I thought that was a nice round off of it. And, you know, and again, the emphasis is on the bass and the drums as well. So I thought that was interesting to bring that in. And just to demonstrate, look, this is a nice example of experimental music, of that futuristic sound and the experimenting um, with music technology as well, that futuristic sound, yeah.
0: You t- So in your book, and even during this interview, you talk about bringing different styles, a lot of differences, and it brings to mind a concept you discuss in your book uh, of something that Brian Eno calls variety. And it's about exploring the foundations and impressions of experimental music and how this leads to unpredictable, but discoverable new kinds of composition. Can you t- walk us through what What Eno means by this concept of variety and how it contributes to the creation of experimental music.
1: Yeah, so it's you know anything goes basically anything goes surreal, picking up everyday sounds, sonic noise, random even that's totally experimental as well. Making random decisions, choices, applying mood Um, that I is very postmodern that ideal breaking. Breaking rules and convention, anything goes. Having that idea of variety of sounds in the music, and one and in that book, I you know do the, the um track that I used. You know, it was like a happy accident <laughs> for Brian. Eno that he created um, that composition because he wasn't unwell at the time, and he really, you know wanted to listen to a piece of music. But he was when he tried to listen to the piece of music, he was absorbing everything, the atmosphere the sounds the birds singing and you know and thought, okay this is this is really interesting you know you could do something with this from from a compositional stance right so yeah and this obviously brought out a new way of composing music but you know just rather than having tuneful melodies just again that word ex- experimenting of everyday sounds and technology and putting things and sounds into reality, really. So,
0: yeah, yeah. In your book, you say, in the digital virtual era, we are constantly reminded of the past due to recycled sounds that are presented in the music, and that music is constantly being experimented with, with sounds that are manipulated via technology and everyday sonics. And in this chapter, you discuss, as an example to illustrate this concept, is the Grey Album. What is the Grey Album, and how was it developed... And what was its impact on music industry and culture in the in regards to virtual and digital music?
1: So The Great Album is a very complex uh, case study, but very exciting as well, which did cause a divide in the music industry and disruption in the music industry. So The Great Album came about in the mashup era around 2004, where mashup culture was really becoming hot And the term remixology in music was really becoming trendy thanks to um, internet and peer-to-peer and downloading, illegal downloading music as well. It was that era, you know, when everyone was downloading MP3s illegally and so on. So with the great album, which was, you know, remixed by um, Danger Mouse, uh, Brian Burton, in 2003... Hip hop artist uh, JC released what was known as his final album, which it wasn't, <laughs> the Black Album. And as a you know, as a present to his fans, he released an a cappella version. Um, and basically said, Do what you want with it, okay? You know, uh, because it, it was a mashup, you know, so he invited them to do a mashup and D- Danger Mouse. Remixed it with the Beatles What was known as the White White Album Self-titled album, Beatles But it was famously known as the White Album And Bearing in mind the time frame 2004, I guess if you hear it now You know, you wouldn't think much of it But back then when technology was starting to Evolved very fast. This was quite unique because who would have thought remixing the Beatles and JC? You know, totally different styles, totally different eras, and of course, it was going to upset hardcore fans, mainly from the Beatles side. Um, yeah. So, so around that time, it was quite unique and brave or oh Danger Mouse to do that, and he did argue it was an experiment only. Okay, so um, but of but you know naturally when people did get their hands on it you know it it somehow landed in the ether in cyberspace and people started downloading it and were actually praising it and so wow picture this beatles and jc performing together making music together you know who would have thought it all thanks to digital technology um danger mouse made it possible using his laptop you know very simple setup very simple um software sonic acid software he used um but you know and this made it possible to remix and to bring a if you like a futuristic sound uh you know that uh, my obsession and of bringing the past into the present you know who would have thought it you know mixing the past and present that sounds futuristic but yeah there was a bit of a Downside to that, um, because even though Danger Mouse did argue it was an experiment, he wasn't intending to sell it or whatnot, he he couldn't anyway if he wanted to. He didn't, you know, he he didn't have permission to use the sound recordings of the Beatles album, which of course that kind of upset the label, um, EMI. So, Danger Mouse and the fans were actually afraid. Confronted with a cease and desist letter. And Danger Mouse obeyed, but the fans and admirers of the great album wanted to show look, this is amazing, people need to hear this. So they held a one day cyber protest about it. And that got even more global attention because when I first found out about it, I found it out in one of the national um, TV news over here in England because they were saying this there's going to be this protest you know everyone's going to download you know and poor danger mouse had nothing to do with it but you know it it, but you know the fans got threatened because to, to participate in the protest you download it upload it on your blog and encourage more people to download it and just spread the word and spread you know this is this is great this is what you can do with creativity right so um Yeah. Um, You know, there's so many downloads, you know, it did very, very well. And as I said in the book, you know, there was a bit of a flaw in one of the copyright laws, which meant EMI could not sue in the States anyway, that was only in the States. But there wasn't a bit of there was no one complained over here. Um, But yeah, but obviously, the publishers, um, some of the publishers that are not affiliated with Directly with the Beatles, um, um, they did try to sue the fans in other means and forms, but they they didn't because it would have been such a complex case. And even if Danger Mouse did want to um obtain permission, it, you know, there's so many channels to go through; it would have been a headache for him. <laughs> you know, it just wouldn't be worth it. The only way he could avoid the situation, and if he did wanted to um release it officially he would he would have to play cover versions or something you know so yeah but the aftermath of that was here we are in 2022 you know this is a we are still talking about it and it's such a fascinating album because it is from a creative point of view it is very very great um to listen to but from a legal side of things you know it's good if you want to learn more about music copyright, okay, what could have been, you know, if, if he did get sued, you know, because it's such a complex case if this did go to court because there's so many people involved. And this could have ruined Danger Mouse's career. It could have because he was only an amateur producer at the time, um, you know, but he is a well much demanded music producer today so you know it really helped him and you know but in a way it did that particular album did disrupt the industry because yeah he used music without permission okay yeah it got uploaded on peer-to-peer on the internet you know because we were, we were in that time you know the likes of Napster and all that you know it's when you mentioned earlier accessibility you know people having access to music, you know, which, which should be seen as a positive thing. I know there's two sides, you know, because it encouraged the listeners to listen to all kinds of music. But, yeah, of course, it's the publishers, the songwriters, artists who are going to lose out. Uh, and obviously we are aware, for those who will kick up a fast such as EMI, we will know about it. But, yeah, it, it, was a, it did mark a turning point in terms of music production and having access to music but at the same time it also gave um, upcoming producers and creators the opportunity and say look oh they can if they can do this I can do this as well because I've got the laptop I can afford the software and so on so you know it, it has opened a big can of worms so to speak yeah yeah
0: so I remember this era with Napster and and when peer-to-peer downloading was making, you know, its scene. I had LimeWire, and I know you saw news all the time about the recording industries suing teenagers and other people for huge, vast amounts of money, right? And. And this is, this is nothing new. Whenever there's new technology, the industry is always concerned about how does it get its share. I mean, several decades before when VHS tapes came into existence, you know, the industries thought that that was going to kill cinema because people could just constantly tape off their TV. So I, I don't, I'm never really concerned about how the industry is always going to react to things. So my question for you is, with the rise of peer-to-peer sharing and examples like the Grey Album, how did that influence creativity? How did that influence people who are making music at home without you know access to industry connections or recording studios? What was the impact of the album on that?
1: Yeah, so it was very, very positive. Um, in terms of creativity, it did inspire upcoming, you know, or other producers or even students to mash up or remix existing music or sources out there and to instantly share with their friends or upload on youtube or what have you so it was the idea of distributing and consuming music freely uh, without having to have a middle person or, without, or gatekeeper or, or, or begging on the industry door you know please listen to my music so it, it you know it kind of open opportunity and showed that you know anyone can do this anyone can have a go it's just happened that you know bearing in mind the time frame danger mouse used the daring group at the time you know um, but at the same time he did argue that the Beatles are one of his favorite groups and You know, even Sir Paul McCartney said he loves the album. So, you know, but yeah, so in terms of that, yes, it opened more opportunity for people to experiment with music and to make music. And in some cases, perhaps without officially learning how to play an instrument, you know, especially because... Obviously, I argue that the laptop, the computer, it should be considered as a musical instrument, you know, depending on the software, you, you know, because of the software you have. So, yeah, so it's, it's it's definitely a time where, you know, devices, instruments are definitely evolving and becoming more digital and opportunities for people to experiment and explore and use the instrument as their own What in case what Danger Mouse did. So, yeah, so I think definitely it did inspire, especially the young, to explore. And especially now, you know, people are remixing their favorite tracks for for fun. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah, so definitely it gives them the opportunity.
0: You say in your book, we may think that in the current digital age, creators in the music industry in particular performers, are gaining greater control over their artistry, but that manufacturing artists into disposable material is still the norm within the industry. When I read that, I think of some classic examples like the Monkees, the Archies, or even Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, the Sex Pistols. Though they are older bands than much more established bands, how has technology changed in recent years in order for the music industry to still create manufactured artists?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, different approaches to that. Um, yeah, so for example, some of the bands you mentioned, you know, all behind the scenes, you know, yeah, very very manufactured, but also dabbling with technology, especially with likes of the Alvin and Chipmunks. Um, and now um, the industry are obviously thinking ahead with their feet, you know, because there's so much going on out there, people independent, you know, upcoming musicians are DIY, they're doing it themselves and having gained control of the artistry and music and just uploading and sharing, especially on TikTok and gaining, you know, um, exposure through there. So, and so, yeah, so obviously the music industry are really, again, experimenting and finding different ways or even different new ways of marketing um, groups, you know, unique ways or just trying, you know, and observing or keeping an eye on what, what's going on out there and trying to hone in on that because, you know, we have we've heard that maybe not so much recently but we are hearing that, you know, the argument, is the industry in decline, you know, because of peer-to-peer, or, or you know, or because even of legal downfall, um, fall, like downloading and piracy, um of course the pandemic as well, you know, but we are we are, you know, it's still I believe it's still a very much thriving commercial industry. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. You know, they do make these threats. For example, with the mashup culture, um, when that was very hot in the two thousand and four, um E EMI I were the first album after the incident that they were the they were the first label to bring out a mashup album, <laughs> so okay, can't beat them, join them, kind of thing. Um, but yeah, but in, but in terms of yeah, I mean, in terms of manufactured artists, we we are definitely we are being more exposed to it if we are observing from an obs- consumer. You know, we are seeing them manufactured in front of our eyes and dropped in front of our eyes as well. Um, and for those who are successful, they're really utilising the social media, that idea, you know, um, having that direct, or giving that illusion of a direct um, connection with the fans and consumers. So that is pretty much more evident now. Um, the fans and consumers kind of appear to have... Um, a relationship if you like what's a virtual relationship with with that famous artist or whatnot? but really is it really or is it being controlled by the label you know so especially when you read social media posts by famous artists you you get that impression oh it's maybe Taylor Swift or oh she, she wrote this today on Instagram but really who is it really her kind of thing so yeah so you know the industry's
0: Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash
1: special offer.
0: Alongside talking about manufactured artists, you also explore concepts in your book like identity and authenticity. And this is something that's always interesting to me because... There's a lot of purists out there when it comes to music who say like, well, it's got to be real people in a room playing real music, or they might say how they present themselves on stage or on an album cover is inauthentic. That to me is just so lacking in imagination. And you talk about some great examples in your book, such as um, David Bowie, who is a personal hero of mine, and also there's Madonna, and you mentioned Grace Jones, who very famously on her nightclubbing album says feeling like a woman looking like a man. So um, there's examples where people are being authentic to themselves as how they present themselves and maintain a certain identity. But I want to know how you define these concepts of identity and authenticity in your book and how do they relate?
1: Yeah, so identity and authenticity are always interesting Um terms to use when when we are looking at popular music artists and musicians. And yes, there is definitely an interplay with those terms as well. And what's interesting, um, identity, we do think of the persona of the artist, maybe on stage, or even in the recording studio as well. Okay, so you know, how are they presenting themselves vocally or in the music? Okay, all through the lyrics, and then of course physically, it will be in the music video or some kind of performance. And, um, and with the likes of um David Burry and Madonna, um, there are two perfect examples uh, because, you know, up to this day, regardless of age or time frame, we are aware of these magnificent artists, um, and they have successfully um, explored their artistry, their identities as well for every album, for every performance. And yes, I, I did not really focus much on them, but I could not avoid talking about them because they did lay the foundations of that chapter. And they have been documented so many times, right? So, But what was really fascinating about these two artists, they are very, very postmodern. and yeah, you can argue, are they really authentic? Because when we see different personas, they're obviously basing it on other texts or other sources. But it's the way they project that. Okay, It's the way they, they portray that in their performance. And they do it very well and experiment with their identity as well, which makes it very much authentic and for that chapter i did look oh, i did look up grace jones because I, you know i'm very passionate of you know of her work and her as well and what was really interesting you know as you mentioned you know she she explores her gender sexuality her identity even though she may she might have a particular identity that we may all be aware of you know the suits the short hair and whatnot it's the way how she displays that on stage in a photo shoot her acting even you know her behavior it's the way she pulls that off all the time and you know what we are seeing we just we are just witnessing her persona her identity we're not really bothered what she's like in real life because she's very mysterious and you know very iconic, you know. So you know, and timeless, ageless, if you like, because you know here we are. I, I, yeah, you know, we are, there's just there is this fascination about her. Yeah, and um, and in that book, I talk about. A video that's perhaps really unexpected because, um, you know, I could have chosen any song, any of the fa- famous songs, but this song that I chose, um, "Love You to Life," I argue, you know, this is where she actually lets her guard down. <laughs> you know, you might see the emotional side of her, but do we? Okay, you know, and she's still teasing us, but we do see the emotional side of her. And you, and if you haven't heard of Grace Jones, start with this video because. Really, you also see different. even though she's naked, <laughs> you do see different sides of Grace Jones. You know, she does her Grace Jones look. You see the emotional side of her, and uh, you see her as a ghost, even okay, or, um, or a robot, even. It's how she controls it with her body. Not only that, in this case, when I said she lets down her guard, because usually um, she's in control of her performances. In this case, she's in, she's controlled by digital lighting effects and different colours, and I think that is really really fascinating. So yeah, so you, you do see her in a different light in a virtual sense. And with the weekend, he I think he's definitely one to watch because he also uh, displays his love for David Bowie, and he's still very young. And every album, every performance, he's experimenting with his identity and his music as well, in terms of style and genre. Um, and, you know, and he's doing okay. You know, he's doing really well in with that. So I think it'd be really, really interesting to see how he evolved over the next few decades also.
0: You discuss how technology can help a musician, regardless of experience, achieve success without being tied up to the major music industry and it's largely due to the role that the internet plays in the distribution and consumption of music how does musical identity play a role in an artist achieving success for
1: themselves yeah so again it's it's all they can have a choice how they want to do it okay they might they might not want to show themselves they might want to be avatars or they might be animated so um or maybe do a mashup video of some sort and just make sure their music is heard somehow. So, in a way, you know, um, people who do want to be recognised for their music but feel that pressure, you know, do I really have to reveal myself, you know, reveal my true identity? No, they don't have to. This is where virtuality can come into play. They could be whoever they want to be, right? Um, So they can disguise themselves in some form or, you know, or collaborate um, with someone, okay? Um, but, yeah, or, or just tease the audience, you know, go in disguise or tease the audience. Um, I mean, for example, with many, for example, um, it's not it's, it's not a new thing, really, because you hear, you know, like with electronic or dance music, you're not really aware of the DJ until you see them live, really. So, or even, you don't they don't... Unless there's big superstar DJ, you don't you don't really see them in music videos, really. So you know, so it's that idea of you know making sure. if, if you might want to mention Daft Punk as well. Um, you know, it's it's all about the music, you know, and make sure the music is being heard. But obviously now with the likes of TikTok, and so you know, and the way Instagram has evolved. It is. It has got to the stage where, it, especially for the young, um, and and that word choices, it has come to the stage where it might be challenging to stay hooked onto one particular song because the is scrolling and whatnot. Okay, so yeah, so definitely the way people are consuming music has definitely changed. So I think that might add a bit more pressure to upcoming artists because whatever they produce, it has to really reach out. You know, if they really want to be acknowledged and be recognised for their music. It's really got to grab the attention of the of the consumers, the listeners. Audience out there.
0: It's interesting you mentioned music videos, and we're discussing how the internet changes how people consume music. And for like the last 40 years, you know, traditional visual mediums for music have largely been animation, film and music video. And I think about artists who started with those mediums and later adopted a more digital presence groups like gorillas who started with animated music videos in the early 2000s but are now fully embracing virtual worlds and performances. So I I wanted to get an understanding of um, how these traditional mediums evolved with the onset of digital and virtual performances and how we get things like VR and immersive digital concert experiences. Yeah,
1: so definitely, you know, that has really took off in this century, right? So, and thanks to technology, it is still evolving. Um, Yeah, so like you mentioned, the gorillas, it's just a purely animation (laughs) group, okay, without going to the story, the concept of it yet. um, But yeah, but as time evolves, as you mentioned, we witness in the videos, VR, okay, even AR, human form with virtual form, you know, Lots of collaboration, and and, and I think as we well, you know, and it, it, again, it comes down to choice. Um, and thanks to the pandemic, we do have more options and how we want to watch a concert. Okay, is it is it going to be live streamed on YouTube for free? You know, um, do we do we want to go to a physical concert anymore? Or, for, or what about for those who don't want it, who are not old enough to go to a concert? You know, this is where Fortnite comes into it. You know, I think that's been a bit of a game changer with video games as well um, in terms of live performances because it has reached out to other areas, other mediums in terms of where we experience live performances. And, um, you know, so we have definitely have more choices now on how we want to consume live music. Um and of course, you know, even though it's been experimented with already um, in terms of holograms or you know performing live with dead artists, for example, even though that has been done in the past, that's nothing new. But we are perhaps going to reach that stage where technology will make it right, and it will make it even more popular. And yeah, which may bring out you know, which which will. Obviously, it will bring out questions and debate and perhaps divide, but of course, it's going to be an audience out there who's going to love it, right? But I think, really, live performances, definitely more choices and more options now on how we want to view live performances.
0: So when we talk about creating virtual concert experiences and utilizing the internet, the whole purpose is to get music out there to more listeners to connect with more people because that's what an artist ultimately wants is for people to listen to their music and this brings you know you know this brings into discussion a lot of interesting topics such as accessibility you know there's a lot of people who either due to the pandemic or another kind of disability are unable to enjoy concerts in the same way Um, there's also the ability for people just through internet access to hear sounds from places far away that otherwise they would never have access to so i want to get a sense of how virtual and digital spaces allow for these new audiences to come on board and what is the effect of that
1: yeah so yeah so in the book i do address that the different ways of consuming or oh, better term experiencing music and of course especially now because obviously I wrote this book before the pandemic um but yeah but as we know there's so many choices now in terms of experiencing and watching performances and what's interesting you know is yeah there are of course for whatever reason you know if if people are attending virtually they may not have that social um experience but they get to hear their favourite artists' music, gain a sense of how they, you know, gain a virtual experience of attending a live concert in their own personal space. So, yeah, so which is great because, obviously, you know, um, for whatever reason, like you mentioned, maybe it could be a disability or they could be feeling anxious you know uh, but they still want to they, they still want to experience live music this you know they, they have that choice and I feel that it's really important now especially with the internet and virtual performances it's very important that makes this really possible and yeah the social effect might not be evident but you know it depends you might have a few friends around but um it does give you that unique experience and a new opportunity in experiencing music as well and i do give various examples various ways in that book you know that is there are various ways now, whether it's a live stream on YouTube, you know, maybe you couldn't afford to go to the concert, okay, but thankfully, some you know, there's a live stream of it, so you don't miss out. Or you or you might stay in touch with your friend who's at a concert and they, you know, sending you WhatsApp or quick footages. you know, it kind of gives you that other kind of virtual experience of being there without actually being there. Or, there's, uh, or you could attend post-concerts, like with apps such as Melody VR, where you you do pay um, to have access to past performances, but you might have that novelty effect as well. The more, you know, depending how much you pay. Uh, So, for example, you might want to jump on stage with Elton John or go on the plane with Paul McCartney. So there are incentives now, um, even though, of course, it's not real, but um, it does give you that nice entertainment, that experience of, of, of another way of experiencing your favorite artist's music and a personal intimate experience as well.
0: So we talked about ways in which digital and virtual music has opened up a lot of barriers and it's primarily due to the internet and the internet does connect people with all kinds of ideas and other resources but I want to understand the flip side of that, and you know, other issues are in terms of accessibility, such as government restrictions to mm. the internet technology. Yeah. So, what are some of the current ongoing challenges uh, that are facing the digital and virtual spaces of music? Yeah.
1: So obviously, um, you know, of course, there—it's not obviously free for all <laughs> globally. Um, yeah. Of course, there are some nations or countries that may have a crackdowns on having access to music for whatever reason okay and of course that that limits the consumer the user's experience of music uh, which is really really difficult and other and of course in having decent access to internet as well um yeah and that idea of that being controlled again so yeah so it's not really free for all and you know it does bring challenges in that and that may it may encourage um other ways in you know, accessing music, which just may not be considered as, you know, legal, okay? And again, that might result in more consequences as well. So, yeah, there's all that um, to think about as well. And, yeah, it is, is. It it is. you know, it is misfortunate that it's happening as well, especially for upcoming creators who may feel restricted, you know, i better not talk about certain subjects or whatnot in case I'll be censored. Of, you know and so on so yeah I mean there is all that to consider as well and not only that yeah even though we all like to think music is a very positive experience anyway whether it's socially or even culturally or even in the religious sense you know yes we do have that negative side of things as well um, or backlash if you like uh, negative responses which can especially now the internet you know you know, the people are quick to share their views or, you know, their dislikes, if you like, towards personally towards certain artists or certain um, music. So, yeah, we are in that era where, you know, we do have to be considerate and think of the fuller picture in terms of, you know, how how do we perceive music and what does this mean for the musician, creator, listener and audience. And consumer
0: as well. When we talk about ways in which there might be a restrictive element for people to make or consume music, money, is, money and industry tend to be the biggest factors. And you discuss in your book how a lot of music creators have little to no control of their artistry and identity in the music industry, yet internet technology has fostered a continually expanding DIY culture. How has this DIY culture grown, and how has the music industry adapted to handle the monetary elements of that?
1: Yeah, so um, yeah, so we are in that era now. Going back to the term accessibility and affordability, yeah, people do have the opportunity to create music and have control to begin with, if you like, yeah, of their music in the hope to be discovered, acknowledged, and recognised, and for their music to be shared. Um, yeah, so and. And uh, yeah, the, um, uh, the industry are monitoring this, you know, because that it's that idea of, of missing out on the next big thing, the idea of not record, you know, not signing up that artist, you know, it's that competition, right? Uh, yeah, so it it has made it very very competitive. I mean, you know, we use I use Lil Nas X for example, you know, a perfect example, a so DIY, very young, but he he knew what he was doing, you know, very clever, DIY, independent, very clever marketing tactic he used there with the help of Twitter. And they just left it to the fans <laughs> to get on with it. And then, he boom, before you know it, he was snapped up by a major label. So definitely, we are not... There's many ways of approaching this because, yeah, the fans, the audience are very much interactive. They're very much involved now. They're doing the free promotion for the artists, if you like, which is great. And of course, uh, you know, um, with the industry, once they've caught on with that, they tend to get the fans involved even more in terms of marketing, you know, maybe with some perks, but with the terms of utilising social media. So social media is really you know it helped with the marketing sense of it so and i think the music industry have really honed in on the audience as well uh, yeah especially in terms of using this social media so um but in all honesty you know i don't think the music industry have that much to worry about because you know they're still having so they're still finding ways of marketing or discovering artists and that, you know of course it's the performances as well you know live performances have made, have made a major comeback the festivals are coming back you know so all the money is with that really so you know and as we know it's not cheap <laughs> to go to a live performance these days and of course merchandise even you know so there's billions of ways of you know that the industry are still having their hands on artists or discovering artists as well. But what ha- what has made a big difference is really getting the audience involved somehow, um, especially in terms of including social media practices as well.
0: It's interesting you bring up social media because you explore social media very uh, in depth in terms of allowing opportunities for artists to connect with fans and fans to connect with artists. And you proceed going into the topic of social media by discussing some other examples in history where artists have embraced computer and internet technology, whether it's Bowie in the 90s with his Jump CD-ROM or apps created by Bjork, Massive Attack, Radiohead. But you discuss a lot about the concept of going viral, virality, in relation to social media. And this is where information is shared simultaneously over a short period of time across social networks. And some examples of this have been Drake's Hotline Bling, Harlem Shake, and even the um, death of David Bowie as a kind of act of grievance and mourning on social media. You brought up Little Nas X, who you say is probably the most prominent example of music going viral. Tell us a little bit about his story, what happened and, and how that came to be.
1: Yeah, so the way he utilised um, social media, uh, as a young, he's still very young, and you know, uh, of course, he's in the, that generation, <laughs> the social media generation. Yeah, so when he created um, um, Old Town Road, um, he the way he promoted it was just a sim- simple tweet on Twitter. Uh, he used a meme and of a cowboy, uh, you know a cowboy of a meme like a funny meme and 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 the tweet was simple it just said country music is evolving and you hear a bit of his song in the background and that just that alone what's that about okay it went viral okay and then when you hear the music you think oh my goodness country music a bit of trap a bit of hip-hop what's going on (laughs) okay of course you know that was unique okay but Staring as well because it's country music and um and of course once that caught on that tweet it got in it got in the hands of TikTokers and this you know they came up with the U-Haul challenge which obviously went viral in its own but they used Lil Nas X as the soundtrack and it became people more intrigued about the music and once and, and obviously later on we found out oh it's Lil Nas X now you know old town road um yeah and then and as we know as we know it when he got snapped up by the label that's when he collaborated with Billy Ray Cyrus and that's when it went number one (laughs) forever (laughs) in the chart so yeah so uh, that is to me that is great way of getting into the industry but a unique way Of being discovered as well just by a single tweet and a meme that just went viral so yeah very very clever I think he's I think he's very clever in terms of marketing himself you know so yeah and exciting as well
0: yeah he's very clever in terms of just kind of driving where music is going to be aesthetically and how we consume it so I wanted to uh, talk with you about some recent signals as to where music is going and what music in the future is going to be like. And in recent years we've seen examples of where the music industry is going in terms of things like hologram performances, those hologram performances by Tupac and Whitney Houston, or even artificial intelligence creating new music. There is a um, there was like some art project last year where a a team had created a four track EP of artists who had died due to drug and alcohol addiction and created new music just through artificial intelligence. And they, and they created new songs mimicking Amy Winehouse, Nirvana, uh, the doors and Jimi Hendrix. And I want to get a sense um, from you as an expert in digital and virtual music. Where do you see the future of music going with this?
1: Yeah, um, where I see it, um, I like to say there's, there's going to be even more opportunity and accessibility to music. But yeah, but when you mention AI, that does, I have to admit, that does frighten me a bit as a musician and an expert, or even as, as an educator, <laughs> even, you know, um, the idea, you know, I'm you know, I've had this conversation with students, do, will we have a job in the future kind of thing, you know? And it just goes to show with the examples that you just mentioned that I've met various ways in applying AI, right? So, you know, the idea of just creating music or, not, or you're not creating music, so to speak, you know, and just taking control again, you know? The industry might love that okay because it, it's going to obviously they, they, they're going to say okay we don't need any more session musicians or or songwriters anymore you know it, and they and they will find a way unfortunately well i don't say unfortunately um they might they might find a way to, of making it very very successful and it may catch on um but yeah but for me personally, uh, yeah, it does concern me a bit. It, it's it's interesting, it's exciting, and I like to see how it will evolve. But at the same time, I I still, you know, I still there's there's still a place for upcoming creators and musicians, right? And and to experiment with music and to bring out new genres and styles, you know, I think. I think it just goes to show music is very much evolving in terms of hologram performances. Yeah. As we know, you know, it has been tried and tested. It has failed a lot of times, but it just has been one off um, performances. But I think the way technology is evolving, I've, hologram performances yeah that could be another way of experiencing live music the idea I, I did not go into it completely in the book but the idea of resurrecting dead artists yeah for me personally um, I'm not too sure how I feel about that um, it does sound a bit weird but at the same time I do appreciate the technology I mean in fact it does scare me you know if I you know if I was forced to watch a a show that would freak me out personally but um but it could be educational as well you know and and it, it brings a different experience of of listening and watching a live performance so that you should be yeah it should be acknowledged and and it's another way of experimenting with music
0: Shara, this has been a great conversation. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for joining me today. Your book was excellent. Um, really fantastic.
1: Well, oh, thank you so much, Bradley. I'm really pleased to hear that. And Thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: My name is Bradley Morgan, and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guest today, Shara Rambaran. Her book is Virtual Music, Sound, Music, and Image in the Digital Era, and is published by Bloomsbury Academic.